Well, hello everybody. Um, we're going to do another reaction video today, response video to a sermon that I've never listened to. I was asked by one of our listeners uh, to listen to a teaching by Richard Rohr. And uh, I'm a little bit familiar with him, but not overly so. I don't think I've ever listened to a lecture um, by him uh, or a sermon or a homily or any of those things. I have a vague recollection that I might have read some things by him but I'm not remembering anything specifically. So this will be uh, new for me, and thank you uh, to our listener who suggested uh, responding to him. Hopefully this will be a sufficient uh, sermon for me to respond to or message, but if you had something else that you were thinking, feel free to put that in the comments or message me and, and I'll give it a look. Probably for these response videos, I'm, I'm usually looking for briefer messages just because the response video itself can be somewhat long. So this isn't a very long one. It's called uh, Your True Self. Uh, you can't get there, you fall there. And it's by Richard Rohr. Let's see what we make of it. morning. Please be seated. I'm very honored to be with you today. I'm a Franciscan from New Mexico, but Father Ed kindly invited me to spend some time here this weekend. And uh, I was already in California for the month where I just finished writing what I hope is a book on the true self and the false self. And uh, so it makes it rather easy for me to preach this morning because in many ways the, the two readings lend themselves to it. In the first reading, we have what is really one of my favorites from Jeremiah where he's moving the Jewish religion beyond its, at that point, its external reliance upon external authority and beginning to plant the basis for inner authority. When you have those two in good balance, you tend to have very balanced people who can honor wisdom beyond them and bigger than them, but also can come to a point of inner experience and can say, I know for myself. Okay, so I'm not sure what evidence there is that that's Jeremiah's target other than, and maybe this is where he's getting it from, uh, the idea of having the law written on your heart, which is certainly part of Jeremiah's later prophecies, the idea of getting a new heart, and having the heart of stone removed. Maybe he's seeing that as an interior sort of personal relationship with God or, or something like that. I'm not convinced that's what Jeremiah is talking about, a move from external authority to some sort of internal experience. That is very in vogue today to talk about. Like when we talk about, uh, Jesus says that God seeks worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. That internal, um, interior type of authenticity or personal relationship with God that, um, that flows out of the heart and not just, is not just imposed from the outside is something we talk about a lot. And that's influenced by Jesus, without a doubt, where Jesus talks about having a superficial kind of faith, being a whitewashed tomb with dead men's bones inside. Um, and the true, Dallas Willard helped me with this a great deal in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, that the true people of God, they, they live out 
the requirements of the law without need for external pressure, but because of a transformation, an internal transformation. So maybe he's getting at some of that. Whether that is faithful to what Jeremiah is trying to say to his people in his time, I'm obviously I'm dubious, but I'm going to give him a fair hearing. And when your knowing meets the big knowing, you've got good knowing. That's that's the goal. Uh, well, I must say, it's, it isn't often achieved, at least in my experience. Uh, being from the Catholic tradition, we have tended to emphasize the outer authority. And it, it can have the experience of keeping many people at a rather childish level. Well-intentioned, but they, they aren't even encouraged to have inner experience. But what we have, Jeremiah... I agree with him on that. That... Um... A righteousness that's purely based in law is very childlike, childish. Maybe childlike can be a very positive thing. But um, we all know what it's like to be children and submit to the rules because they are rules and we're afraid of punishment, but not to really have any internal orientation towards these rules. But he keeps speaking about not so much the law written on the heart, like a transformation of character, but some sort of internal experience is what it sounds like to me. So I'm interested to see where he goes. I'm not opposed in principle, I don't think, to what he's saying. I'm still wondering how he's going to contextualize that in Jeremiah and whether or not it's going to be some sort of pietistic kind of spiritual thing he's talking about or if there are any real practical ramifications of it. But I'm with him. Obeying out of fear um, is not really a sign of maturity. That is a, a childish type of, of obedience. As saying here, I will put the law within you. I'll write it on your heart. I'll be your God and you will be my people, which is a great covenant line that they often repeat. And then he says, no longer shall they teach one another. So I said earlier, well, why am I up here? You know, uh, fairly, fairly you're, if you get to that point, you don't need other people to tell you. All they can do is second the motion. You, you know it for yourself, and they tell you you're not crazy. So, I so the only reason I'm stopping there is I've often thought this as, as well. Um, but I'm not sure Jeremiah is talking about some sort of uh, individualist religious experience where I don't really need anybody else to confirm what I already know God is telling me. Maybe he won't go there. Maybe I'm overreading it. But here I am, a Western, um, a Western, you know, American Christian in a culture that's highly individualistic, and for many of us, we've become a law and a god unto ourselves. And it's not uncommon. Maybe it is in the Catholic tradition where he's from, but certainly not in the Protestant tradition that I grew up in. It's not unusual for people to have a very idiosyncratic understanding of what God wants and to think that they themselves are the sole arbiter of what God wants for them and they don't really they're not really interested in any other opinions that might conflict with theirs very happy to be confirmed in their belief system by people but not challenged in any way and so when he says something like that I worry uh, but uh, he's obviously speaking in maybe a slightly different context maybe he won't go there whenever you listen to a message I don't know if you do this, but there's always a sense of anticipating where this is going and trying to decide if I want to follow in this track uncritically. 
And so you're, I'm always playing out possible ways he could be leading me. And I think that's healthy to do as long as you can then set back and listen and let him go where he's going. And that's what I'm going to try to do. But obviously, I have a lot of hesitations early on. But I hope whatever I'm saying this morning will tell you, I hope you're not crazy. Hmm? Then we come to the gospel um, where Jesus uh, goes right to the heart of the matter, and as he often does, in saying there's a price you have to pay for this kind of big knowing. Uh, and he says, the single grain of wheat, it's a marvelous metaphor, really, the single grain of wheat that each person is, it has to die to itself. Now, uh, maybe you know, or don't, that's actually, to many of you, I'm sure it sounds very Buddhist, because they're saying the same thing. So this might display my ignorance. I'm always willing to admit that. But I don't recall, I remember Paul saying, that a seed has to first be buried before it can become the plant that it's intended to be in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection of the body. I'm trying to, I this might just be my ignorance. I'll probably do some research after this. I've not watched this before, so I wasn't ready for it, but I just can't recall off the top of my head what teaching of Jesus, Jesus he's referring to that, um, an individual stock of wheat is to be understood as an individual person and that stock of wheat can't live unless it dies to itself. I'm at a loss. I'm, 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 let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I'm just forgetting, but I don't remember Jesus saying that. But the small self can't get you very far. And Jesus calls the small self the single grain of wheat. Where you look out at life from your preferences, what you want, what you need, what you understand, what you prefer. Uh, and at that point, your life is all about you, which isn't a very big life. But a lot of people, that's all they know. That's the only way they've been trained to think. They haven't moved to, to the contemplative level, higher consciousness, the spiritual level, the eyes of Christ, whatever you might want to say. And what Jesus is doing is trying to get us there. And he's saying unless that single grain of wheat dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. Which is fine, but not what I'm talking about. But if it dies, if it can let go of its little ego boundaries... Of okay, obviously there's a lot of interpretation here, but I'm going to have to try and find this teaching. So you'll see me do this on the screen here. Um, as I try, I, I should have probably had my Bible open because I'm going to have to find uh, what he's referencing because now, sorry about the music, but now he is um, ringing some bells for me. But the way he was caricaturing it, it, it wasn't familiar. So let me just do a little search here and see if we can find the passage that he's talking about. I wish he had said uh, which one it was, but sometimes you have to do this little bit of research. All right, so it looks like he's in John chapter 12, um, verses, verse 24. So let's see the context. I'll read this to us. John 12, I'll start in verse uh, 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These people then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and were making a request of him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, 
Then Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. But Jesus answered them by saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so that's the passage that he is referring to. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the sense here is that a, a, a grain of wheat is simply a grain of wheat, but, but if it is buried and planted, it can produce many grains of wheat, right? It bears a lot of fruit. And he's ascribing that to the one who is willing to lose their life um, for the sake of the gospel, that they too will bear much fruit. That's his context. Sorry it took me a little bit of time, but... Uh, thinking it it's all about me and what I want and what I need and what my hurts are and my fears are. If you can move beyond that, you're capable of a much bigger seeing. Uh, it's much more compassionate, much more forgiving. It's much more inclusive. Low-level consciousness is always, always decides who is not like me. And it pretty much gets trapped there, as we've seen in the tragedies in our country these last few weeks. Always people who are unworthy, not like me, another race, another whatever. And it becomes fully justified in their little mind, and it is little, uh, you have to say that, in their little mind it's all justified to even kill. So... It might sound like he's really deviating from his point for some. I don't know if you're following him, but um, essentially he, he sees, and I think I agree with him on this, the center of John, of this teaching of Jesus and John, that somehow selfishness um, and overfixation on myself is what Jesus is decrying. And he's playing out, he's just contextualizing it for our time, the ways in which that hyper-focus on oneself in isolation from others, um, produces a lot of, lot of evil. Is that Jesus' point? Definitely denying ourselves as part of the teachings of Jesus. Getting over ourselves. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. Things like that. So I think he's on solid theological ground there. Not convinced that this passage... I think this passage is about one who wants to preserve their lives, who's motivated by survival. I don't think it's just motivated by selfishness. I think it's more basic than that. I think it's survival. And Jesus is saying, to really follow me, you have to think of yourself as the grain of wheat. That um, death, you have to be willing to die. You have to be willing to let go of your self-protection. That You need to be vulnerable. You need to let down your guard and embrace death, vulnerability, risk. But if you want to survive, if you want to protect yourself, you never be able to follow Jesus truly. That's what I would sense. Maybe he's going to go there. 
He's definitely reading some theological stuff into it, but we all do that. And if we look at human history, uh, much of this has been done, I'm sad to say, in the name of religion and the name of God. Because if you have God behind you saying these people are bad and my people are good, well, you can kill with impunity. Without any guilt, but actually feeling rather good about yourself. Brothers and sisters, you've got to know that's what we're dealing with in our world. And why this somewhat hard message, uh, and the messages are getting harder as we now move two weeks into, or a week into Holy Week. That the, the, the language of something's got to die for something to live. Now in the book I just tried to write, I call that, that something that has to die your false self. It's not your bad self. It just isn't real. <laughs> it allows you to do very stupid things uh, without realizing they're very stupid. And now normally the trials of life, the suffering of life, the maturity of life, little by little along the way, you learn to distinguish between the real and the unreal, between what lasts and what doesn't last at all. And you recognize the different aspects of the false self. Your skin... So I interrupt him just again for a moment. I, I have difficulty entering into that idea that the real battle is between who we really are and some false version of ourselves. That kind of dualism, um, I'm not sure that's it. I think it would be easy uh, to overcome the resistance we have to submitting to God and to embracing uh, who we are as creations of God and, and calling to live in a certain way that's dictated by God, I think we would find that easier if if, if it was really a matter of, of finding our truest self versus some false version of ourself. I really think this um, issue of the darkness in us um, and carnality, the scriptures would say, something like that, is not between a false sense of who we are and a real sense of who we are, but a competing vision of who we want to be. Both equally real, with real consequences in the world, but opposed to each other. And I would say that's the spirit and the flesh. Um, and like Paul, there's a lot of... Um, philosophical stuff behind what he's saying. I, I've certainly used the phrases the shadow and the reality, like the sacrifices in the First Testament were shadows, Jesus is the reality, Babylon is a shadow, um, the spiritual forces of evil are the reality, things like that, but he's not really talking about that. Um, but it does say in Colossians, for instance, I'm, I'm processing this kind of all in real time, it does say in Colossians that who we really are is hidden with Christ in God. In some way, you might say that that's the truest version of ourselves. But I think that's a way of speaking. I don't think the other version of ourselves is false. Temporary, because if we persist in our rebellion, there's a finality to that road. Whereas if we embrace the teachings of Jesus and follow him, that road never ends. So there's certainly a finality, but does that make it false? Interesting. Are our fleshly desires false not real 
he's not going in a place I find it easy to go. Skin color, your sexual orientation, your ethnicity, your country, how much money you make, your car you drive, the clothes you wear. Brothers and sisters, every mystic and saint and prophet would say, that's what's going to die when you die. And if that's all... Okay, so they're temporary. Is that what he means by faults? That they're temporary? I agree they're temporary. That putting our hope in these things is uh, putting our hope in temporary things that are for the fire. Yeah. All you have, you got nothing. <laughs> That's the false self. And we live in a country and you live in a state which prides itself. Because it's the nature of the ego. On sort of, you know, pushing forward my false self. To look better, to look more beautiful, to drive bigger car, whatever else it might be. Uh, okay, so that's like a facade he's talking about as a false self, like a mask or something like that. Still, I don't think that that's fair. I think sin is way more um, integral than, than that. I don't think it's superficial. I don't think it's a facade. I don't think it's at all like, like he's talking about the things we hide behind. Um, to create a false self that we show to the world, like a, a like um, a whitewashed tomb, like we talked about, when there are in fact dead men's bones inside. That's a fictitious self. It can be. Many of us do that. We present ourselves, like on social media, as happier than we really are, or as more depressed than we really are, or as more successful than we really are, or less successful than we truly are. Whatever we 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 have this image, our brand, like they say today. And we present that. That's a fictional version. But I don't think you, you associate that with all of our wickedness. Some of our wickedness is not just a facade. It's like really what we want to do and who we really are choosing to be. And I think that's different. I, I think this is too simple, but maybe it'll get helpful. Never gotten down to the basic of who you really are before that, before you made any money before you got your law degree, before you were a doctor, before you were a priest, uh, who were you? Well, you were a child of God. As Paul says it in Colossians, who you are hidden with Christ in God. That's the true self. And there's nothing you can do. So this might be the difference between his kind of Catholic uh, perspective and my more Protestant perspective. Because I think of us as born children of wrath, or as Paul said earlier in John, in chapter 8, to the Jewish people, and he's speaking for everybody, that they are more naturally children of Satan. Um, we have this idea of original sin that produces a, a general fallenness from birth in Protestant theology. So uh, his sense that before you did all these things, you began as a child of God, that doesn't strike me as a very... Certainly not a Protestant Christian take, but maybe it is Catholic. Nothing whatsoever to create that self. You've got it. You're stuck with it. The only difference in this room is the degree of awareness that you draw your life from that who you are hidden with Christ in God. And so... So I've often taught that that is who we should be living out of, that version of ourselves hidden with Christ in God, perfected in glory, that that's who we should be living out of rather than our past self that is steeped in uh, the material and the, 
and the experiences and the abuses and the genetics of this world, we should be living out of that future version. But he seems to be saying something a bit more uh, comprehensive and metaphysical that we always live out of, that that's who we really, really, really are and everything else is just false to our true self. I don't read Paul as saying that in Colossians. I guess you could take it that way. I don't. These people do tend, all things being equal, to be much happier. They don't emotionally go up and down like the rest of us. Because they've seen through the shadow and the disguise of the false self. And again, I want to repeat, it's not bad. It's just inadequate. Sort of stupid. Sort of, it can't get you there. It can only get you to small groups of people who look just like you do. And I'm afraid that's, that's been a lot of tribal religion in history up to now. Tra gathering people who are just like me. And making ourselves feel superior and saved in that very small context. Okay, so um, there's, there's to me a little bit of, um, of a conflation going on here. Certainly uh, the scriptures are not opposed to us gathering I think they assume in the New Testament that you should gather around like-minded people in the context of worship, not agreeing on everything, like Paul has teachings on meat sacrifice to idols and some other areas that we have to be given liberty to disagree. But over the central core confession that Jesus is Lord, um, over the central core um, confessions of faith that we have in the New Testament that Paul claims we have, we have to resist any attempt to change them, um, you, there, we're certainly like-minded, right? I mean, at least in a core basic way. I think the problem is that we try to agree on everything without a good distinction between what is um, clearly uh, articulated and what is still left up to some interpretation. We fight over that and sometimes we try to narrow the field so much that there's no disagreement. So there I agree with him. You cannot possibly imagine a community in which there is literally no difference of opinion. Paul doesn't even describe that. But there certainly is a gathering of like-minded people and some core confessions. I would think he would have to agree with that. So the problem isn't tribalism. Tribalism is like the I when he gets into the feeling that my reading is superior to somebody else's and I can only be with people who are part of this because everybody else is outside. But there are outsiders. Like this is it's very complicated. Very complicated. You don't want that elitism, you know, um, that would push against even the liberty that Paul allows for disagreement within the body of Christ. But at the same time it's not as though anything goes and that you should just be worshiping with people of such a wide variety of opinion that even on the core confessions of the gospel, there's no like-mindedness. That's not it either. And there certainly are, uh, there, there certainly are those who are saved and those who are not, unless we're universalists, which I'm not. And so there is some kind of a line between inside and outside, and it should not give us a sense of superiority, of course. And we may not even know what that line is. We may think ourselves inside, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day did, only to find out that we ourselves are outside, like a lesson that Paul himself learned on the road to Damascus, when he thought he was following God, and he, he was doing that by, pursu by uh, persecuting Christians, and then only to find out that he was actually at war with the God that he thought he was serving. So we sometimes find out that we're outside. That's the humility that we need. But 
gather I would I just wish he didn't lump together with the superiority and the tribalism the idea of gathering like-minded people there certainly is to gather around Christ there is at least a core confession of faith there has to be there has to be that's the New Testament like you'd have to reject the scriptures to reject that I think and of course by definition therefore it's not salvation uh, I think it was Eddie Breslin years ago said uh, Catholicism and I know you're Anglo-Catholics just like we're Roman Catholics he said to be Catholic is to say here comes everybody at least it should be saying that because that's the word that the, the church took to itself already in the second century this universal people this people who discovered the real the substantial their inner DNA, their divine nature, and that created the level playing field. That created the common ground. I don't really think it was about an internal discovery. I think it was a discovery of Jesus. Um, I really don't like this. I, I'm very pietistic in a lot of ways, but this is too much for me. This is too much um, self-realization, self-actualization as the core good news of the gospel. Maybe he doesn't, he doesn't mean it the way I'm hearing it. That's always possible, but this is pushing wrong buttons for me. Brown. That created the community, and as I just said, once you see it in yourself, totally undeserved, unmerited, unachieved, then you know everybody else has it too. And all of your stating of preferences of these people are better, those people are worse, these people are right and those people are wrong, it all falls apart. It means nothing. It, it... That's, that's unfair. That's unfair. I mean, some of it falls apart for sure. But um, there's plenty in the New Testament of Paul insisting that certain people are outside the proper gospel proclamation and they need to be resisted and they need to be ignored and they need to not be supported. You see it in Second John. You see it in Third John. You see it in the book of Galatians. Um, you see it in Thessalonians. You see it in Timothy. Um, you see in the book of Revelation, these are not like uh, peripheral concerns. And of course, it's the heart theme of the First Testament is false prophecy and the deception of the people by various leaders and various teachers and all those sorts of things. So um, trying to decide what, who, you know, which confessions are true and which are false and which people are, are working with God and which ones are working against him, that is that does not fall apart. Um, Maybe it will in the new heavens and the new earth. Maybe he's got a bit of what we would call in Protestant theology over-realized eschatology going on here. Uh, certainly in the new heavens and the new earth, um, those things may fall apart. But uh, not here. I, I don't see what he's saying to be New Testament theology. You start seeing with what most of religions would call the eyes of God. And it's beautifully put in this particular gospel from John 12. It all starts saying these two disciples, we want to see Jesus. We want to see. And then Philip passes it on to Andrew. And it's all about learning how to see. Religion is about learning how to see. And the broader you can see, the more you see with the eyes of God. It's so simple that it's hard to teach. It really is. 
Simple things are very hard to teach because for some reason we're convinced it should be complex. It's not a difference between complexity and simplicity. Um, so, in this text, these are Gentiles. They're Greek, Greeks. They're not Jewish people who've come and they're at this Jewish feast. So maybe they're God-fearers. But they want to see Jesus. Jesus is obviously his disciples are running interference for him. And so um, Philip hears about this. He tells Andrew. And then, because Andrew is one of the inner circle for Jesus. And then they come and tell Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say to them, oh, come on. I I'd like to meet them. Instead, he simply responds by saying something to his disciples. Um, and the implication may be, it certainly seems like it is to me, that perhaps these people, um, I don't know if he's trying to say that his disciples should have talked with them, or if he's saying that they're not yet ready to receive him, or if he's giving a message that he intends his disciples to bring back to them. Um, but it's, it's certainly not just making the esoteric point that to come to Jesus you have to want to see and, um, yeah, following Jesus is, is simple in a way, like death is simple. But if you've ever walked with someone on the road to death, you'll realize that as simple as dying is and as common as it is, it's, it's not easy. And it's really not simple. Um, and the same is true in following Jesus. See, salvation... And I don't think this makes me a heretic. Some of you might think so. But. so <laughs> salvation is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When are you going to get it? I don't know if it makes him a heretic or not. It depends on whether he's violating the creeds there, which he's probably not. But I, I don't affirm that everybody will be saved. So then it is a matter of if. And, and a lot of people, uh, hospice workers are telling us this, a lot of people put it all off till the last five months, the last five days, some the last five hours, and believe it or not, some the last five minutes. But according to the testimony of thousands of hospice workers, almost everybody gets it at the end. You know? He needs to cite a source for that. He needs to cite a source for that. I certainly, my experience is not universal. But in the 20 years that I did pastoral ministry, um, I can say for certain that people die without an awareness of who they are in Christ and without a desire to submit to Him. I, I don't know how, I, I would like to see the testimony of where he's getting that information. Maybe it's personal um, experience that he's gotten that from. But in my experience, that's not really the case. I wish it were, but I don't think that's really the case. I gotta let go of all of it. And so what we That's true. Maybe I should have waited. At, but no, that's not true. I can think of one example where a person fought to the end, just held on for so long, it was terrifying. It was the worst, I don't know how I could have forgotten it. It's the worst experience of death I ever had. And I remember asking the nurse, what's keeping her here? And she said, some people will not stop fighting. And um, she said that very uh, positively. 
But if he's saying that because everybody dies, that means that everybody at some point has relinquished life. That's not true. Life is taken from some people. They don't relinquish it. Say about salvation, I want to say also about death. It's not a matter of if. <laughs> it's a matter of when. <laughs> and what religion is about at its more mature levels is dying before you die. Dying before you die, and then you're not afraid of dying. As the poet said, death... That's not true for everybody. And I hope that you won't feel judged if you are afraid of dying, even though you have died before you die, and you hold the faith that Jesus will raise you. Um, I've sat with many a Christian who I know loves the Lord. I have no reason to believe that their uh, faith was inadequate, but they had great fear, maybe not in the actual death itself, but in the process of dying. And there is a difference between being de dead and dying. And there can be a lot of fear in dying. I, th I see it even in, in Jesus, maybe I'm overreading it, but in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked for another cup and he, he either was sweating so profusely, blood bleeding from a wound, or he was bleeding through his pores, one or the other, it depends on how you translate the Greek, he seems to be in great distress. And that wasn't over being dead, I wouldn't think. Maybe it was. But certainly the process of dying is terrifying for most people. So that's the easiest way for me to read Jesus. Uh, maybe we don't fear death because we believe in resurrection. But that's not the same as saying we don't fear dying. And dying can be very difficult. I've walked with a number of good godly Christians who died very slow, very painful, very frustrating deaths over a great period of time. And uh, they, they were in seasons afraid that they wouldn't be able to handle it, that, that it would be too much. A lot of things. Your faith is really tested in those seasons. I think he's making light of it. I don't like that. Death can do me no harm, but you have to have done it once to let go of what you think is essential. What you think is absolutely true and forever me, and if I don't have this, I can't be happy. So, so we're practicing dying ahead of time. That's true, and I wish he was using essential, non-essential, temporary, permanent, rather than false and true. I, I just didn't like the language. You see? And little by little you say, you know what, that's not me, that's not me, you don't need that. Now these are the people who don't have to wait for the last five days of life to get it. They find the essential self. You see, the true self is nothing you create. As I said before, you can't, because you already have it. You fall back into it. I totally disagree with that. Yeah, but that might be a theological difference in our traditions, and it will be up to you to decide which one is more accurate. But I really think... Um, the, the version of us hidden with Christ and God is something we're becoming as we follow Jesus, not something that we were. Maybe cosmically in some ways, in the sense that humanity was originally created in relationship with God and then fell and then comes back. So if you're talking about humanity corporately, maybe you could say it's what we were. But I don't think the individual um, was who they really were and then somehow became something else or, or put on a bunch of false masks and then suddenly realizes and rediscovers who they originally were that's not what I think is happening. Uh, that's not how I read the New Testament. But.
You fall back into it. You collapse into it. And you say, Eureka, as Jacob at the... This is platonic, too. I should say that it's Neoplatonist. Um, not that that... I, sometimes labeling things doesn't help, but it strikes me as a Neoplatonic argument that um, before we're born, and I don't know if he's going here, we are um, perfected you know, in, in, in the ideal state, and then we're born into the flesh, which is a type of falling, but we begin to rediscover who we were before we were born and start to live into that truest version of ourselves. It sounds very Neoplatonic to me. Um, and that doesn't make it wrong, necessarily. I mean, Augustine, one of the father of Western theology, was in many ways Neoplatonic. But um, that's not what I think is, is happening. I think we're born into a world with a disrupted relationship with God bound to corruption. And I don't think you can separate who we are like that. You'd have to have like this great division between the soul and the, and the body or something to, to maintain that, which also is Neoplatonist. Um, it's called dualism. Whereas in the scriptures, humanity is a body-soul unit, right? We're made from dust and God breathes into us the breath of life and we become a soul. We become a nephesh. And the nephesh, the soul in scripture, is both material and physical. And I think we're born into a corrupted kind of state, whether we're born in a Christian family, non-Christian family, or whatever. And so I think it's a, it's a process of, of becoming uh, who Christ has called us to be and is remaking us, um, not rediscovering what we were, unless you're talking corporately like what Adam was, but not who we individually were, I don't think foot of Jacob's ladder. You were here all the time, and I never knew it. And my great sadness after being a priest for so many years is, in my experience, even the vast majority of Christians don't know it. They're still trying to achieve worthiness, and, and, uh, they, and they never get worthy enough. And, and as long as they keep trying to climb, they always live with a kind of sense of inadequacy. And, so he's worried that maybe perhaps the language I'm using of becoming puts the onus on us to work harder and then creates a sort of despair. And he wants us to have a sense that, that we're not striving for anything. We're simply, I would say we're not striving for anything. We're receiving something. And it's really God's work to do. We just have to remain uh, open to it and following in the direction he sets before us, which can sometimes take a lot of courage, but doesn't take a lot of effort. Um, but I think he's saying something else, like, there's really nothing to change. There's just something to rediscover, maybe, or something. I, this is just simply not the way I read the scriptures. Inferiority. And what the gospel, I believe, is saying very clearly in today's version is that you can't get there, you fall there. Okay, so that is, um, I like the last line, and that of course was the title, um, because it is true, it's by dying that Jesus conquers. And certainly Jesus has always been God, and then became flesh, 
and then was raised to new life. So some of what he's describing, we each individually experience, we certainly could say, you could say, see how Jesus would experience that. But I don't think we have a pre-existence before being born here the way that obviously God has always existed and Jesus is God in the flesh. Um, I think we're born in this place and I still, some of you know, my if you followed anything that I've taught in the past, you know that my, um, yeah, my belief is a little different than, than his, that God is still making a being in his image, that we're not born fully formed in his image, but on, but birth is a beginning, and um, there's no guarantee that we will be in his image when life ends, that some will be stillborn in this womb, and that's my sense of, of judgment, though it's, it's just a very rough sense because of course all the dead according to the scriptures will be raised and have to answer for the lives they lived in the flesh that incidentally makes our lives worthwhile if you didn't have to answer for what you did you really wouldn't matter it's like writing a paper that no one's going to grade that you only it's just for your own sake or something but uh, certainly will be raised so when I say stillborn I don't mean that there's no judgment but in some ways, then they're sent into the second death, so they never quite make it out of this reality. They're not welcomed into the new one. It's like dying in the womb in some ways. Um, so I think we're always in a process of becoming from the moment we're born. I, I don't like this idea of rediscovery. So in any case, it's an interesting message, um, for sure. Um, Obviously, he's coming at things from a very different perspective than me. It was not a very expositional sermon. It's not like he walked through the text, did any history or any discussion. He sort of just uh, decontextualized the text, took it out, broke down its core metaphors, and then kind of reframed them into the way he wanted to speak about it. And I guess we all do that to a degree, but he was doing it quite in an extreme degree. Um, but again, not being um, in the Protestant tradition uh, where there's a high value to in many places, at least in evangelicalism, for historical critical exegesis before you move to application, um, he's doing a little bit more of an allegorical reading of a teaching of Jesus. So in any case, um, I found some of his teachings um, interesting. Certainly the, the self-obsessiveness and uh, the protectiveness of our own selves and the focus on this world and temporary things as core and essential to who we are. I would agree with him that those are uh, ultimately unfulfilling um, aspects of worship and of identifying ourselves and temporary. So we need to fix our eyes on permanent things, things that will last forever. In Christ there's no male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, barbarians, uh, barbarian, Scythian, you know, these are temporary things of this earth that will not exist in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we think about who we really are being called to become is about permanent things and not temporary things. So I agree with that. Um, I'm not sure I, I would explain it the way that he did or get there quite. Obviously, I didn't like the idea of false and true self. I do like the idea of essential, non-essential, temporary, permanent, things like that. Um, earthly, eternal, something like that. I don't like the assumption that there's like um, some spiritual part of us that can be distinguished from our flesh and is what Paul means when he says that our true self is hidden with Christ and God, that that's some sort of a spiritual self that we rediscover. Um, I'm not, not for that. 
Um, overall, I think the, the base of the message that following Jesus is about sacrificing the things we think we need and trusting him to tell us what's really essential, I agree. The core of the message, I agree. Um, there's a latent sort of universalism in him that does not resonate with my experience of death and dying, nor does it resonate to me with scripture. Um, so some concerns, but listen through it again um, with my comments if you want more specifics. I would say overall, I would say if you listen to a message like that uncritically in the West, you're more likely to walk away with a highly individualistic and universalist understanding of Christianity that erodes um, any need to define true from false or religion from religion or anything like that. And if that's what you want, then this is a sermon for you. But I don't think that's a biblical way of looking at what the church is. Though the things he worries about, I do worry about them too. I just don't think I can solve the problem the way he did. So, but thanks for listening. I hope this was helpful. If you have another message you'd like me to listen to, uh, put it in the comments and uh, we'll give it a shot.